Amen. Church, go ahead and grab a seat for me. It is good to be with you. Happy Sunday. For those that are new with us, a special welcome to you. My name's Lee. I have the privilege to serve here as the lead pastor. And uh, following the service, we would love to be able to just personally connect with you. I want to encourage you, again, if this is your first time with us, stop by our guest services table right over here in the hall where we'd love to just place a gift card to either Dunkin' Donuts or Starbucks, your pick, just to say personally thanks for being with us. And uh, I would as well love to be able to hear your story and just give you a personal welcome. So I'll be hanging out over there as well following the service. We are in a series, a conversation, and we do this periodically throughout the year that we break up the, this, the, the year in just conversation about the Bible. And we started last week a conversation that we're calling Home Field Advantage. And we're talking about what are biblical principles that are important for us to adopt when it comes to the most important relationships. How do we build a biblical home? How do we build a God-honoring home? How do we build God-honoring relationships. And so we're going to begin actually in just a moment in Genesis chapter 3, and then we're going to flip over in a little bit to Ephesians chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles with you, your digital device, go and open to Genesis chapter 3, then we're going to jump over to Ephesians chapter 5. But as we get ready to prepare, I just want to take a moment. Let's just pause. Let's pray this morning, and let's specifically just ask the Lord to speak to us exactly kind of where we're at with what we need this morning. Would you join me? Lord, we love you. We need you. And I pray that as we open up the Bible, as we open up and take a look at your word, Lord, that you would open us up, allow us to be vulnerable with ourselves, but most importantly, vulnerable with you, I pray in your mighty name, amen. I was about eight years old, and my family, we had jumped in the car like we did pretty much every Sunday morning, and we were getting ready to head to church, and we had barely pulled out of the driveway when my little sister turned to me and said, Lee! And uh, what do you typically do in that kind of moment? Well, you turn to address kind of whatever she wants. Well, I turned to my side, and all I saw was a boot up in the air flying at my nose. And uh, my four-year-old sister at the time thought it would be really fun to kick me in the face, kick me specifically in the nose with her cowboy boots on. And uh, in that moment, I was like, this isn't going to work, you know? Um, blood everywhere. We had to flip around the car. Parents dealt with the situation as necessary, both with me and with her. But that, that is part of living in a home together. Like, that's part of family. Like, there is this incompatibility at times, and we're all at fault in different ways, and we've all met these moments of great pain. Um, we've all faced moments of sorrow, um, partly because of the incompatibility of just being human and being placed in close proximity for a long period of time, right? I've even heard people talk about marriage. How do you find the right person to marry? You know, that's the big question when you're a teenager, when you're in that college age. Like, how do I find that person? I've heard somebody say it. Well, just find that person that you want to annoy for the rest of your life and marry that person, right? So, um, or who can put up with your annoying, you, you know, tendencies for a lifetime and you can make it through it. Uh, the reality is we're just different, and our differences cause a level of incompatibility. And so today, we're going to be talking specifically about how do we overcome the incompatibilities that exist in our deepest relationships. And we're going to take some looks at, at different parts of the family. We're going to take a look at marriage in that process as, as well. And, and here's kind of the big idea um, that I want us to kind of tackle and walk through this morning is simply this. Incompatibility in the home that isn't actually worked through if we don't persevere, if we don't endure, if we don't try to get to the solution side of things, 
it actually becomes a catalyst to, to malfunction, discord, and daily frustration. So there's, a, there's an element, like we have to learn how to navigate. We've got to learn how to work through these different things. And the reality is why it's important. If we don't, get this, if we don't work through the incompatibilities, if we don't work through our differences, it will make our deepest, most important relationships in our life completely inoperable, or it can actually make you an unstoppable force. Do you want to live in a relationship or a marriage or be a parent that has an inoperable relationship, or do you want to be an unstoppable force? You know, the most common box in our world today when it's checked on why people want to get a divorce, it's because of irreconcilable differences. Yes, we're different. An interesting thing, theologian, author, journalist, back in the early 1900s, J.K. Chesterton, he wrote this. He said, if people can be divorced or for incompatibility, he says, I cannot conceive why any of us is not divorced. Think about that. There's so much truth in that one statement. Marriage, parenting, deep friendship really is a lifetime commitment of working to overcome the incompatibilities that exist. And we oftentimes blame certain things, right? Well, we're just different. We're all familiar with the old book, you know, men are from Mars, women are from Venus. Like, we're just different. We're different sexes. Men are just different from women, and they are. We, we look at it from the standpoint, well, we just come from family. Our family backgrounds are different. You know, we're Italian. They're Irish. We're just different. We get along differently. We think differently. We, 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 so sometimes we blame the incompatibilities based on our upbringing or the way that our families raised us. Sometimes we blame our communication styles, that we just communicate different. I've heard it said that some people talk until they get to a point, and other people talk when they have a point. Different perspectives in the way that we communicate. Sometimes we just blame our personalities. Well, I'm an eight on the Enneagram. I'm a two on the Enneagram. So, you know what? We're just not going to connect well. And so we, we look at our different personalities. You know those personality tests? I, th I think they're great, but all they do is help you understand your communication style. But what we need to understand is those really aren't the defining reasons why we're incompatible. Those, those things that, you know what, we're just different backgrounds, different sexes, different communication styles, all those things just exasperate the incompatibilities that already exist. I, I love that word exasperate. You know what it really means? It means to irritate intensely. And, and so what that means is that, yes, we may be different. We may have different backgrounds. We may have different communication styles that add a layer of irritation. But in and of itself, that really isn't the problem. It just exasperates the problems that are already there. So where does this incompatibility, where does that really, really come from? Well, I want to take a look at it because it originates all the way back to the very beginning. 
in Genesis chapter 3, we have this perspective. And, and what we see is God creates Adam. He creates Eve. He creates Eve from Adam. He gives Adam a specific job. What is that job? It's to go name all the animals. In this conversation that God is having with Adam, you see that also he commands Adam. He says, hey, you see that tree over there? You're not to touch it. You're not to eat of that tree. And then he creates a helpmate to walk beside Adam in that process. And then we're familiar with what happens. Satan appears in the form of a snake and he deceives Eve, right? And Eve in her deception chooses to eat from the tree and in doing so, sin enters in the picture. But what we see in that, and when you kind of read between the lines, who else is standing there next to Eve? Adam. Adam is there, he's on the scene, and the way that you kind of read through the details of the story, it makes it seem like God gives Adam the command, but Adam, at some point, either he didn't actually translate that command and let Eve know of it, or he thought, you know what, I know that God said this, let me stand back and watch what happens to Eve. At no point did he go, this is not a good idea. As the snake is talking to Eve, going, no, 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 don't listen to him. We need to go. He's on the scene. And as a result, sin enters into the picture. And what's the very first thing that Adam and Eve choose to do? They hide. And they cover up. They cover up between each other because all of a sudden, for the very first time, just as the snake had told them, they now began to see the difference between good and evil. They experienced shame. They began to experience guilt. And it drove a wedge in between them, but also in between God and their relationship with God. God gave Adam those commands to not eat of that tree because he knew he had created humanity in a, such a way that it was incompatible with sin. And because sin entered into the picture, it began to break down everything else. And I want to pick up in the conversation that God has with Adam and Eve after this moment. God's walking through the garden. He's calling out, hey, where are you? Not like he didn't know, right? You can't play hide and go seek with God. But in chapter 3, verse 16, he gives us this, or starting in verse 15, he says this, he says, I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He's talking specifically to the snake and the serpent at this moment. He says, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. God, in this moment, he's actually, he, he is giving us a prophecy of how it's going to play out. And you can kind of picture this. He's talking about with Satan and the serpent, like, you're going to think you're going to win. You're going to 
you're going to snap, you're going to try to bite the heel. It's kind of like the, that picture of if you're walking through the woods here in Florida and you come across a snake and you don't know you came across a snake, but you have your boots on and it bites your boot and you feel something, but it doesn't quite get you enough that the venom can get into you and really, really damage you. What do you do in that moment? Right? You smash it. And so the picture that he's given us is this prophecy of what's going to take place. He's saying, Satan, you're going to think that you're going to win. You're going to strike. You're going to nick the heel. But in the end, it's going to crush you. And he's given us a picture of who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. This didn't surprise God. He had a plan. And so the reality is the the very first thing that we see that God is beginning to put into place in order for us to deal with incompatibility, you and I, the first thing we need to do is we got to surrender to Jesus. Jesus came to deal with it, to deal with sin, deal with the thing that drove the wedge that created incompatibility in the first place. God didn't create us to live in this sinful state, to, sin, to, to live in the sinful world. He created us, but because of sin, he's got a plan to deal with it. And if you don't experience this, if you don't understand the love of Jesus, you won't have the power to overcome and work through all the other problems, all the other incompatibilities that sin creates. So what happens without the hope of Christ? He gives us a picture of that starting in verse 16. It says, Then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy. In the pain you will give birth, and you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. And to the man he said, Since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, The ground is cursed because of you. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you. Though you will eat of its grains by the sweat of your brow, will you have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made? For you were made from dust, and dust you will return. So he gives us some interesting perspectives of life, how it begins to play out because of our incompatibility of living in sin. How sin disrupts everything. Sin disrupts our rhythms. It disrupts our relationship, both with our relationship with God, our relationship with one another, our relationship with creation. He says, ladies, motherhood is going to be filled with pain. Yes, pregnancy itself, there is this physical element of pain that you feel in the birthing process, but that's not the end of it. Any mother will tell you there's great pain just in being a parent, being a mother, wondering, are my kids going to be safe? Wondering, are they going to make it? Or is this going to... That is a root of the incompatibility of what sin, how sin drives a wedge into every relationship. And then he says, there is going to be this desire in you to want to rule over your husband, to control. And then there's this idea of of male. He says, for you, Adam, in this, but he will rule over you. In other words, there's now this incompatibility exists that was once created to be a perfect relationship. And he's saying, 
Eve, you're going to have this desire. Ladies, you're going to have this desire in your marriage to manipulate in order to control. Men, you're going to have this tendency to dominate in order to control. And as a result, this incompatibility will continue unless you learn how to surrender first and foremost to Jesus and allow Jesus to begin to guide you through this process. And then he calls out Adam and says, hey, Adam, all the things that you do, the way that you work, and remember, this is an agrarian culture at this stage. How many of you have grown up on a farm in the room right now? So several of you, a few of you. When it comes to farming, is it just the dad that does the work? No. It's a family business, right? And so when he talks about, you know, the work of your brow and all this challenge that you're going to face, he's not just talking to Adam. He's talking about family. This is the way it's going to play out. It is going to affect all of you. It is going to be hard work, and it's going to be working the ground. It's going to be a challenge. This wedge has been driven. And the reality is, if we were to break it down, incompatibility then carries on all into every relationship that we have within the home. It exists in our marriage. It exists as a parent. It exists between siblings. It doesn't go away. And it can lead to different varying dangers. And I think there's kind of stages that we need to be aware of when it comes to how incompatibility begins to grow. If we don't learn to deal with it, it can lead us into a very dangerous spot. Let me kind of break down some of these stages of where sin and incompatibility can lead us relationally. So the first stage is what I would call communication breakdown. Incompatibility can hinder effective communication. Where it's like, well, they just don't get me. He doesn't get me. She doesn't get me. You know, I really need this, but they seem to do this. We've all heard of maybe the, the love languages and the five love languages, and sometimes we speak different languages and how I feel love or how I give love. And so the beginning stage is this, there's an overarching communication breakdown. Somewhere our ability to communicate and understand each other begins to break down. And so as a result, we have misunderstandings, misinterpretations, and there's just an overall lack of meaningful dialogue that happens in the home. Now, if communication breakdown is not dealt with and is not brought into clarity, it leads to relational tension. That relational tension begins to increase, and we become incompatible as personalities, interests, or values, and as a result, it creates friction, and that friction grows into constant disagreement. And so we've got to pay attention. When the communication begins to break down, obviously that's the place where we want to intervene. If we don't intervene, relational tension will begin to increase, which leads to stage number three. We have emotional distancing. When family members, when spouses are incompatible and aren't willing to work on it, it results in this detachment. We emotionally detach ourselves. We create distance, making it, in, the, in that process, it becomes very challenging to establish genuine emotional connection, or what I would call mutual understanding. Because we've just kind of pushed ourselves, and we're now moved into, we're roommates, we're just going to figure out a way to get through this, versus learning how to support each other, which leads to number four. Number four. 
if emotional distance, if we don't cut it off there, overall erosion of support takes place. It erodes our sense of support, our teamwork that actually exists in the home. Family members might struggle to actually empathize with one another's challenges. We just don't even want to connect at that level anymore. And so as a result, there's a lack of encouragement that we give to those people in our home or around us in our marriage as they're walking through a difficult time. The fifth leads to isolation and resentment. Isolation and resentment. So if we don't deal with the erosion of support, the fifth and final stage is isolation and resentment. This ongoing incompatibility leads to individuals living isolated lives within their own homes. And as a result, it's easy to begin to develop these feelings of resentment or contempt towards other family members or towards your spouse because you perceive all of this stuff is it's contributing to the discord. It's important for us to begin to recognize at the very beginning where are we at? What are we dealing with? For some of you right now, like this is eye-opening to you, maybe in your marriage or in the way that you're engaging and having conversations with your own children. In order to overcome, and this is so important, in order for us to overcome incompatibility, you and I, we have to be willing to play the position that God has given us to play. When I was in college, I started my freshman year of college actually playing soccer and uh, joined the soccer team, and the soccer team had probably the most talent of any team I'd ever played on in my entire life. Uh, we had guys from all over the world. I had Nigerians, I had Romanians, I had Brazilians, I had Mexicans. I mean, we literally had people from all over the world, different ages, just incredible different experiences. And yet the problem was we never played up to the quality of play that we should have played to. And the reason was we just didn't get along. Part of the root of us not getting along was, if I look back on it and rewind it, part of it was our coach. Our coach didn't know how to bring all the different personalities and all the different cultures and help us learn how to get along and play the game the way the game was supposed to be played. And so what you found out was that there were moments that the coach would put seed into people's mind and go, hey, so-and-so is having a bad game today. Don't pass him the ball. And that would be the conversation at halftime. Well, that going day after day, game after game, leading into practice, you begin to create friction, and there's now incompatibility to the way that the game is being played. And you'll have people that just don't even want to talk to other people on the team. Trust began to disintegrate. People weren't having fun. It got so bad that we finished the regular season. We were still invited to go to the postseason. And in that process, you're early. Thank you, Jonathan. But I'm going to save you some time. You're going to be up here a long time, all right? So, but, but in that process... He sat us all down and says, hey, we're not going to go into the postseason if one person decides you don't want to go. And he made us take a vote. And we had to fill out a card, yes or no, am I committed to going into the postseason? And he said, one person votes no, we're not playing. We all unanimously somehow said yes, because I still think that was a miracle in and of itself. We went to the postseason, 
and we were one game from making the national tournament. And it went into extra time, and we just happened to lose an extra time. Because for the very first time in the entire season, we actually began to play together. We actually began to play the positions that we needed to play. And the reality is that carries over into our own lives as well. In order for us to overcome incompatibility in our marriage, in our relationships, in our friendships, it is so important for us to learn how to play the positions that God wants us to play. I want us to take a look at Ephesians chapter 5 here for a moment. Ephesians is a unique book. It begins with Paul writing this letter to Christians in the city of Ephesus, and he writes so. He begins the letter with highlighting key principles that are important for the church and for these early Christians to begin to understand and adjust their life to. Saying, hey, life isn't based on performance. It's not based on these things. Your well-being with God isn't based on checking off the task list. And he's holding these principles before them. And then he begins to build these principles into how does this now play into your everyday life? And the interesting thing is Paul addresses exactly what we began to talk about last week, that how the family is the foundation to the church, family is the foundation to society. And he begins to play out, hey, this is how when you begin to live this out, this is how it's going to affect you in the family unit. And he begins by talking about marriage and some interesting things in chapter 5 that we need to understand about playing the position that God has ordained for us to play when it comes to the marriage relationship. And then he goes into children and he goes into other areas, but he begins there in chapter 5 talking about marriage. And the way I want you to think about Ephesians and even what we're going to talk about, the way that he writes this letter, it's kind of like, you guys are playing a game, but the lights are turned off in the stadium. And it's hard to understand where you're at and how you're doing and if you're in the right position. But when Jesus comes in and Jesus begins to give us perspective, he turns the lights on. And now the game begins to make a little bit more sense. We see where we're actually at on the field and that he as our coach is beginning to put us in the right positions at how we're supposed to play in order to bring compatibility so we can actually live this out to our full fulfillment. So I want you to have that perspective as we read this passage in Ephesians chapter 5. This is what he says, starting in, um, right there in verse, um, verse 21. He says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's an important thing. He, he starts off right now, who's submitting to who? That there's this mutual submission that takes place between husband and wife. As you submit to the Lord, you're submitting to one another. And then he begins to break it down. And this is probably the most quotable verse that men know, even if they haven't been to church, they know this verse. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. You miss verse 21 if all you do is quote 22. You've got to see verse 21. There's this mutual submission, and then he breaks it down. How does this actually begin to play out? How does this play into the role that God has actually called you to play? So he says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Then he says, husbands, love your wives, 
as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love the wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. He begins to spell out what these roles and how they actually begin to play out. He says, wives, you are to submit yourself to your husband. But the way in which he interprets submission is that we best submit our ways to our husband through the idea of respect. Ladies in the room, the man in your life, your husband, feels most loved through your respect of him. And I know what some of you are thinking. Well, honey... Respect is earned, right? No. Respect is given. And then you begin to look at the call that he has on the husband. Ladies, he said, your call is to respect your husband. But he says, husbands, you are to love your wife as Christ loved the church. How did Jesus love the church? He gave his life for. And some of you in the room, as men, you go, yeah, I'd take a bullet for my wife. That's great. But would you kneel to her? Would you serve her? Would you say no to your own pride and selfishness to walk with your wife? There's got to be a willingness to die to yourself. And so there's a unique call in the way that we both experience love. I know one of the greatest compliments I receive as a husband is when somebody meets my wife and says, Lee, you married up. Because it means that my wife is living in such a way that it's respectful to who I am in our home. God has a plan for how you live your life. He has a position. And until we begin to experience his love, we experience his grace, we experience his forgiveness, it's as though we're running through life playing a game where the, we're in a stadium with the lights turned off. Allow him to turn the lights on. Begin to experience the game the way it was meant to be played. As much as you all want to be on the field and maybe be the person that scores the goal, you don't score a goal without the other support players in place. Play the role that God has for you. We can't all be the same person. Ladies, you have a spot. Men, you have a spot. Begin to play that position. And here's what I want us to understand as we begin to, to wrap this up. Surrender to God's love and submit to God's game plan. Would you surrender to God's love and submit to God's game plan? We will never learn to move through the incompatibilities in our most important relationships until that becomes the truth for our lives. It begins with the submission. It begins with the surrender. Now, I want to wrap up by kind of giving us 
a couple application points on things that obviously when I talk about this and I think about this, I promise you God's already working on this in my life before I ever articulate it to you. I think there's five things that we can all learn to work on when it comes to dealing with the incompatibility. And here's some things I want to encourage you to do that will help you take steps towards unity. First of all, it's important for us to identify the heart of the issue. If you're wrestling with tension, if there's things that exist that seem to be driving a little bit of a wedge, if communication is beginning to break down, begin to ask yourself, what is really the heart of the issue? Give the other person the benefit of the doubt. Focus on the issue. Don't bring up the past. Don't bring up all these other things. Focus on the issue that's present now. The second thing I want to challenge you to do is, especially for those that are married couples in the room, I want to challenge you to pray together. Pray together out loud. Start with one time this week. I know for some of you, you may have been married a long time and you've never actually ever prayed together. There's something powerful that takes place when we open that door and the vulnerability creeps into our life at that level. This is part of submitting and surrendering to God first, but doing it together. And so I want to challenge you to pray together. And it may be just one or two sentences, and then the other person prays one or two sentences. But begin to adapt this to your lifestyle. It's fascinating. The research shows the divorce rate plummets among couples that actually pray together. There's something unique that takes place when we open that door. The third thing is there's moments where you just may need to seek outside counsel. You bring in a third party and you dialogue and you just allow them to speak into your life and coach you through things. You don't need to be ashamed of that. Sometimes we just need help to get over something that may be a hindrance in, in our way. The fourth is implement gradual changes. Um, you can't change everything at once, but you can begin to adjust little things here and there and begin to adapt those into your life. Don't take too big of a step. And last thing is this, persevere in the progress. You've got to stay committed. Persevere, continue to plod, continue to endure. Don't give up. Don't give up. God can work through it and allow him to do it. I've seen God do the miraculous in some of the most hardened hearts, in some of the most hardened relationships, in some of the most hardened marriages. It takes mutual submission between you and God first to begin to deal with the incompatibility issues and then between each other. Guys, I want you to know first and foremost, you're not alone. When you come into a room like this, there's so many different experiences and so many different backgrounds and so many things that we can all talk about. It's why it's important for us to be open and humble about how God has walked with us and even guided us on in our own story. And your story and your experiences can be an encouragement to somebody else in the room as well. Um, and so let's not hide behind those things. Let's not allow our shame to, to close it off. But let's allow the light to shine so that we can all begin to play the position that God has for us. Let me pray for you. Lord, we need you. And we thank you for you. And God, as we talk about even the incompatibility and overcoming our incompatibilities, God, I, I pray that we'd first learn to submit and surrender before you first. Lord, walk with us. Strengthen us. Help us have the courage to admit our own faults. 
to ask for forgiveness from you and from those that we've hurt. And Lord, we pray to the God of all restoration. Lord, redeem us. Redeem our hearts. Redeem our story, I pray. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen.